Good morning. <clears throat> I was thinking uh, just in the last two months, three friends lost three friends to death. And in uh, the last three months, four friends. That's. Uh, that's too much for me, personally. But this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, that we've been in the last uh, couple of weeks, has meant so much to me, not only now, but over the years. I did my master's thesis in uh, 1979. I wrote my thesis on this chapter. And it's been a prominent in my life uh, ever since. To, uh, to good cause, to good benefit. And I hope that as we return to it now, starting with verse 35 to the end of the chapter, uh, it will also be of good benefit and cause to your spiritual growth and your life in Jesus Christ. Let me read it to you, verses 35 to 58 of 1 Corinthians 15. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he's chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. But there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon. And another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory or great honor. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Now let me just uh, stop there. I hate to break the rhythm of what Paul is saying, but natural is a translation that I, I just have a lot of trouble with, only because when we think of natural, we think of uh, something material, something we can touch. And when we think of spiritual in contrast to something natural, then we think of something immaterial, something ethereal, something that we can't touch. And that is altogether wrong. And I want to make that very clear right here. In fact, let me just make this point. The word translated natural is the Greek word for soul turned into an adjective. So, if I pronounce it for you, we would say psychikos. 
we use the word psychology, which is built on the word soul, from Greek, psyche. And this is the word, we could say, psychikos, or psychikos. And it means soul-like, soulish. Okay? So it's not talking about material. Soul, to the Greeks, uh, in, in the, its heritage, is, is not something material. In fact, the Greeks believed that when you die, your body and your soul are separated. And the body is the material part, and the soul is more the intellect, not the material part. Are you following me so far? Now, when we get to the word spiritual, we're not talking about something material or immaterial. We are talking bodily, and so there is a materialness to it, but it's not one is material and one is immaterial. What it's really emphasizing is that, like psychikos, the word soul turned into an adjective, soulish. So the body raised is going to be a spiritual body. But what it's emphasizing, what Paul is emphasizing, is the life, the bodily life, is going to be spirit-driven. Whereas the life sown, the life that we lead now, is described as soul-driven, and I'll explain why in just a moment, this is going to be spirit-driven. Does that help a little bit? So don't think material, immaterial. That's the main thing. Think existence and the power drive or the vitality of that life, the one sown versus the one raised. Okay. Let me continue. Verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man... Adam became a living being. That's the soulish part. <laughs> and it goes back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Paul is actually citing Genesis 2, 7, when God made human being. And it became a living being. And that first Adam is what we are all in the pattern of, if you will. The prototype of our life is the first Adam. But now in the resurrection, going back to verse 45, he says, the last Adam became life-giving spirit. So everything that he said in verses 42 to 44, what is sown, perishable, dishonorable, you know, kind of lowly, embarrassing, shameful, uh, weak, pitiful, psychical, the psychical body, the soulish body. He contrasts with that which is imperishable, incorruptible, what is honorable, of great glory, what is powerful, not weak, the spiritual body. And what are the prototypes? Well, that which is sown is the first Adam. 
But that which is raised is the last Adam. The first Adam, living being, you know, just default life. But the last Adam, that which is raised, life-giving spirit. Okay? You got it? That's very important. We have two prototypes, two pioneers, as it were, for life that we're looking at. Verse 46. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then, or the soulish, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth of dust. The second man is from heaven. As the man of dust, so also those who are of the dust. You getting this? And as is the man of heaven, so are also those who are of heaven. Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, or the likeness of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image or likeness of the man of heaven. So you have two big profiles here. First Adam, last Adam. Fallen Adam, raised from the dead, last Adam, Jesus Christ. Verse 50, I tell you this, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What's that mean? Well, he tells us in the next stanza or the next line, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Paul's emphasizing here everybody's got to be changed. It's just not those who are raised from the dead, but those who are living when Jesus comes, they must be changed too because the, imperish, the perishable must put on imperishable, and flesh and blood was a... Uh, a catchphrase, a standard statement for our, our frailty, our weakness in our human condition. And then he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That is, we shall not all die. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead shall be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Notice he keeps emphasizing imperishable, incorruptible. That's a theme that is highly significant and very prominent here in what Paul says about the resurrection life in our new existence. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What you give your life to, what you give meaning to, is not futile. It's not in vain in the Lord. That's so important 
This we know, Paul says. We know this. As I mentioned, I've lost some dear loved ones, and so many of you have too, maybe more than, than me. This is the most in such a short, such a small window of my life. Been looking for cards of condolence. When you buy a condolence card, I, I can get away with a lot, you know, in a lot of cards. Thank you cards, happy birthday cards, anniversary cards. Although I like to put a lot into it and really find those words that express by heart in a better version of my own. But when it comes to speaking to the heart of, of someone who's lost a loved one, it takes great care. It's a lot harder. There's a big difference between picking a card out for someone who is, is, a, is a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Christ, a, a Christian, and one who is not. And when you look at cards, most cards are geared not for the Christian, but those who have, those who have not died in the Lord. I ran across, uh, a lot of them have poetic expressions, and some actually have poems in, in them. I ran across a poem in one. It was really quite beautiful by Isla Pascal Richardson. Here's just the last stanza. We cannot see beyond. By the way, the poem is expressing the sentiments of a person who has anticipated death and now, in a sense, in the arrival of this card, is speaking, although now dead. We cannot see beyond the poem expresses. But this I know, I loved you so. T'was heaven here with you. We cannot see beyond. But this I know, I loved you so. T'was heaven here with you. The poem is expressing that if we can't look beyond, we can certainly look back. And we can have a certainty in what we see in retrospect. Looking back, we can know. I loved you so. T'was heaven here with you. I'd like... I'd like you to think with me for just a moment. I mean, a little more deeply than we normally would about death. This poem says we can't look beyond, but we can look back. We can't know what's beyond, but we can know what's past. I loved you so. T'was heaven here with you. 
And at that moment, it dawned on me as I was reflecting on this, and this is true to our experience, especially some of us who have older, who have experienced death of loved ones, maybe parents, even children, maybe a spouse, a friend. You can recall that experience. And the poem here expresses a real true experience that I really want to bring out the best in this for just a moment. The poem crowns ordinary days, ordinary experiences of the past. Have you ever noticed how that works? It's, it's like you look at your life and you look at that person with eyes you didn't have before. You see everything differently. The glasses of death. And all of a sudden, you begin to see how precious things were that at the time were not thought precious at all. I mean, in ordinary life, in, in ordinary marriage, in ordinary loves, there are these annoyances and these petty little grievances and irritations that crowd in. And a lot of times through everyday life, we just kind of go through things automatically. But you put on the glasses of death and all of a sudden, you want it all back. It's all so precious. You realize what you had with the perspective of loss. You can't have it back. It's gone forever. Death has destroyed it and deprived it. It's a loss. It's not a gain anymore. And what you took as, as something abundant as air and water, now you think, oh, to have one more drink, to inhale one more time. I mean, we know what that's like. If I lost Shelly, I would say, I loved you so. Twas heaven here with you. But right now, we've been together almost 42 years, and I've got to admit to you that a lot of it is not heaven. <laughs> but if I couldn't have it, if I couldn't have you anymore, Shelly, it would all be heaven. And that's what I want us to appreciate for just a moment, is the fact that the ordinary lives that we lead, we realize are more precious and more full of meaning than we could ever attribute to it except when it's gone. And we don't appreciate it enough. But now I want you, thinking along those lines with me, I want you to realize something even bigger. We should not wait for death, deprivation, and loss to realize this. And we have good grounds. Death should not teach us, not retrospection. And with retrospection, there's regret because you can't have it back. You can't change a thing. But because of the resurrection, 
there's a whole new perspective added to our lives. And although I think it is truly fair to say, "'Twas heaven here with you," in retrospect, what if because of the resurrection we were to realize the real value of those moments, not in retrospect, but every day that we live them? Because the message of the gospel, the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the people of God, the people of Jesus, at his resurrection and exaltation. The Spirit is himself an evidence that he is risen. That spirit that works and prompts and compels us in the spiritual life, the life of making us more like Christ. And the resurrection is the consummation, the tangible fulfillment of God's purpose for our lives and the power of the spirit at work in us. And in Romans, just for example, chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, it, it is expressly emphasized that the Spirit of God will raise us from the dead, even as he raised Jesus Christ. And it is the Spirit of God that is the prominent verification of God's presence and work in our lives. His fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, faithfulness, gentleness, Against such things there is no law. This is the work of the Spirit. This is the, also the harbinger of the new life that we will lead in the resurrection, in the heaven, the new heaven and new earth. And that's a beautiful thing. And it should cause us to realize what each and every moment matters in the light of Christ. I mean, how do we enjoy a glass of water as though it were our last? How do we live that wisely? I know we can't live that intensely each and every day, but if we could somehow savor the ordinary moments in a way that not just from the perspective of death, but now with the perspective of God's great wisdom and the promise of the resurrection forged by our pioneer and prototype, Jesus Christ, we ought to be living that way more thoughtfully and really and truly. If you take that thought for just a moment and you realize, you know, it is really precious to how that perspective, the perspective of a poem, the perspective, if you will, of death, and then even more the perspective of the resurrection causes God's people to see the meaning in the moments of life. And not just little trivial irritations and frustrations and not maybe as much to get sidetracked by the silly things of life. And we're so human, it's going to happen. But what if once in a day or a few times in a week, the resurrection and this perspective that is ours in Christ were more relevant to the way we looked out on our world? And it is to be 
the lens through which we look at life and look at one another and look at life's hardships and look at what is meaningful and what is valuable. And that really is the, the angle that Paul wants us to realize is the angle of our walk in Christ when he concludes this the longest sustained discussion of Paul that we have in any of his letters on the resurrection of Jesus Christ in this 15th chapter and he says our lives our work is not in vain that's so powerful it is though with the with the glimpses that God gives us, that even death, certainly the resurrection gives us to the meaning of life, how much more then should we crown not just these earthly moments as heavenly, but crown the heaven that awaits us in the resurrection that God will fashion for us? And that's the picture that Paul is giving. And to do that, he wants us to set our eyes on Jesus. Straight up, that's the most important thing. He is our pioneer and our prototype. God's plan is far superior to ours. And Paul gives us not just food for thought here, but a feast, lots of rich detail. But in brief, he is saying our future in Christ is a feast and all you have to do is see it, is keep your eyes on Jesus because he is the resurrected one. That's the simple version. But if we look at it in a little bit more detail, Paul gives us some things to really hang our hat on or really help us understand. And he begins by saying that we shall bear the image of the man from heaven. Now, before I take us right to what Paul's saying, when I was a kid... Um, I watched Superman all the time. They, they had a serial show, and it was on every week, sometimes every day. I loved to watch Superman. You know the story? Does everybody know who Superman is? And do you know that, at least in the older versions, I don't know how they tell the story these days in modern terms, but Superman didn't you know, prance around in his tidies. He, he was Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter. And he was kind of a nerdy guy. And the amazing thing is you look at Superman through the eyes of Lois Lane, who was kind of a, a flirty, you know, they never made her a love interest, but, you know, I as a kid could even see, a young kid could even see that, wow, why can't Lois Lane realize that Clark Kent is actually Superman? Because I know that. Sometimes, something like that can help us to appreciate who we are in Christ. We don't always see each other as we really are in Jesus Christ. We, you know, we see the Clark Kent thing and not the Superman thing. And Paul is emphasizing, although that's kind of an uh, earthling example, Paul is emphasizing that we are in the resurrection 
going to be engineered by God with the DNA of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit engineered after the man from heaven. That's what Paul says here. Not the man of earth or from earth. He's talking about the origin, the place of origin for our new and full, complete being in Jesus Christ. And that's pretty exciting to me. When the question is, with what body do they come? Probably a little snidish on the part of the Corinthians, thinking, what a silly thing. But Paul answers it with an example, the example of a seed. And when you look at a seed, when I, I haven't bought that many seeds. I'm not that much of a gardener, but I have bought seeds. And when you buy the seeds, you buy the picture of what the seed is going to become. They always have a picture of what it's going to become. Because you would never, you would never believe it if you just had a bunch of naked seeds there. That that seed, that dried up, and unless it dies, Paul says, it's not going to be, you know, that's what he's talking about. He's saying there's continuity and discontinuity. It's going to be you. But don't look at yourself and imagine how much more magnificent you and I are going to be. You just can't judge it from the seed itself. And he goes on then in the verses leading up to verse, uh, through verse 41 to say, look, God in his creative genius, look at how he has ordained and arrayed the celestial and the terrestrial and all of the diversity upon this earth and in heaven. He says, trust him in effect. He knows what he's doing. And then in verses 42 through 44, when he compares and contrasts what is sown and what is raised, he's in effect saying, you can trust him. This is going to be better than ever. I mean, we are so body conscious and our, our sense of presence and identification with this world is bodily. A lot of us, if we're smart, love the creation that God created. He said, it is good. And at its best, and that which is from his hand and not ours, is good. Even though it's corrupted through sin and age. But now think, that same God is going to engineer our new life after Christ, after the pattern, after the prototype of Jesus Christ. It's very, very beautiful. Malcolm Muggeridge used the example not of a seed that has died and then come to life and fully blossomed, fully transformed, carrying out that notion of continuity and discontinuity because of transformation, but he uses the example of a caterpillar and butterfly. I can't. Re I remember in grade school, you know, the monarch butterfly, the chrysalis, that ugly worm. I thought, oh, you're kidding me. I'm still, if you're rooting around in a tomato patch and you come across one of those tomato worms, man, I just, that's probably the one thing I do have a fear of. I do not like those caterpillars. 
But then to see it transformed into a gorgeous butterfly, you say, oh, please, light on my hand, kiss my cheek, because they're so beautiful. You should be encouraged about the life to come when God will shape our bodies perfectly and splendidly suited for a new and extraordinary environment, not just spatially, but spiritually. Well, that's, whoops, that's Paul's picture. He also gives us a pattern, which I've talked about in terms of the first Adam and the last Adam, and then he gives us a promise. And that promise is in verse 51. We shall all be changed. We shall all be transformed. When I was a freshman in high school, I was uh, um, a skinny little thing. And uh, my uncle had a pool because he built pools. And we had a big, we loved to have family gatherings at his house of course. And uh, he had a real fantastic springboard, and I was clowning around. I was a hot shot, you know, diver doing all kinds of flips and stuff. And uh, I was showing off, and in my showing off, I didn't really get my hands over my head when I went in the water, and my head hit the bottom of the pool before my feet even entered the water. And I came up... uh, I saw my grandmother there, and I, I remember calling out to my grandmother. I can't, I've never experienced such excruciating pain. And uh, they were laughing because I was incoherent. Um, I thought I was saying words, and it was, I was speaking in tongues of another kind. And uh, this went on what seemed like an eternity. I'm sure it was just a few seconds, but then I guess the blood from the top of my head, we really started, and they realized something had happened. My uncle, he jumps in and grabs me, and he's running along with me, bouncing in his arms as they rush me to the hospital, which if my neck injury had been severe enough, I'm sure that would have been the final blow. Because they were so ginger with me, you know. Okay, now carefully get him on to the x-ray, and and I'll never forget the, the x-ray technician saying, from what we see here, he says, you are the one of a hundred who is not paralyzed from the neck down. And, and I, over the years, Johnny Erickson, she dove in, hit her head, and was paralyzed from the neck down. I felt a kinship. She says, and she does. She longs for that resurrection body, but she adds, don't assume that I, all I ever do is dream about springing out of a wheelchair, jumping up and dancing, kicking, doing aerobics. No, I'm looking forward to heaven because of a new heart and a heart free of sin, sorrow, and selfishness that beats having a new body any day, but it's double or nothing. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing, isn't it? Paul says in, in Philippians 3, chapter uh, 3, verse 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we really belong, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Well, that... When 
we are all transformed will bring victory over death. Death will have no power any longer. Evangelist Billy Graham told a story at the funeral of a president about the funeral of, prime, of, the, of a prime minister, and that prime minister was Great Britain's wartime leader, Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill planned his own funeral in advance, something I haven't given any attention to yet. But he did, several years in advance. And in his plan... He wanted something to be made clear, his hope in the resurrection and eternal life. And he did it by instructing that after the benediction, taps should be played. And you have to imagine this, St. Paul's Cathedral, and in this massive cathedral, at one side, unseen, unannounced, all of a sudden, taps begins to play. How sobering. Dun, dun, dun. But then after a silence, startling another buglist from the other side of the dome, playing reveille, tap signals the end of the day, sunset, reveille, a new day, the beginning of a day, the start of new things. That's how we should see what is sown and what is raised. That's how we should see our existence in Christ. Not as sun I love sunsets. I love watching sunsets with Shelley. And you can stand there and stand there and stand there as you anticipate the end of the day, the closing of the day, and the disappearance of the sun. Sometimes we look at our lives that way. How much better? The beginning of the day in Reveille, a new day in Christ. That's why Paul says, stand firm in your faith. Galatians 6, 9 says, let not be, let's let us not become weary in doing good. For the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Will you stand with me? If you say to me, have a great day, have a good day, I know exactly what you mean. I really appreciate that. That's a wonderful wish. But anymore, I say, make it a great day. And there really doesn't have to be a difference, but I just want you to understand that in the light and the truth and the knowledge, we know in that kind of knowledge of the resurrection, every day can be different. And we can make something great, lemonade out of lemons, if you will, out of the little irritations and things. We'll always have that perspective because of the resurrection.
We'll always know that we can do better and there's a better version of ourselves. And like Paul says, whether you like his wording or not, put off that old version and put on that new. You know, be Superman or Superwoman. Make it a great day and walk in the Spirit. Because the Spirit is the foretaste, the down payment, the pledge of God, of the resurrection, life, and power. It is the DNA of our resurrection. And it's not something in the future. It's already a part of our makeup and who we will be in Jesus Christ. I'm going to close in prayer. When I say amen, I want to remind you I'm going to be up here along with the pastoral staff, elders, their wives. If you want to pray, it's always sweet to pray together about something maybe God has spoken to you about this morning or to pray for someone else that God has put on your heart or whatever it is, we invite you to come. Don't leave without sealing any kind of a decision or work of God in your heart without prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. May we, in faith, realize who we are in Christ. We praise you for that privilege in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, God bless you.